Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people. Welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Martinez Gassmeyer, and this is the Reader's Corner. As a matter of fact, it's the finer Reader's Corner of 2021, the summer of 2021, which means you'll no longer have to listen to me talk about this crap anymore, uh, at least for another season, possibly permanently, but I don't know. And I thought I'd round out the season by talking about a writer who I have great admiration for and whose work I really enjoy. And I think everybody who's ever read him enjoys him. And that, of course, is none other than the late, great Douglas Adams. It's funny that I decided to uh, end everything on Douglas Adams simply because he seems to be sort of the crux, the middle point between the two types of people I've been talking about this season, mostly science fiction writers as well as uh, the occasional humorous writer. You know, he's another, uh, I briefly mentioned him when I talked about Bob Sheckley, of course Terry Pratchett came up, and Dorothy Parker, woman who's very closely associated with humor. Uh, and, you know, a handful of others, but most of the people, he's, he's one of the major pinpoints of this. So, Douglas Adams was originally born in Cambridge, England in 1952. Uh, interestingly enough, his initials are DNA, and he was born just a year before the DNA double helix was actually discovered in Cambridge. So, as he liked to say himself, he got there first. Yeah, Douglas Noel Adams, I believe is how you pronounce his middle name. And he grew up in kind of a rough household. His parents were quickly divorced a few years after he was born. And then he and his uh, one sibling, I believe he had had a, a sister, excuse me, and their mother moved into this animal shelter that was run by his paternal grandparents. And so between the chaos of not having a father in his life and the chaos of being surrounded by these slightly damaged animals uh, really did do a number on on Douglas in, in some ways. But not nearly as much as getting made fun of for how tall he was. Douglas was very, very tall. By the time he was 12 years old, he was 6 feet, which is a very tall 12-year-old. And finally, he stopped growing at about 6 foot 5 inches, which, um, you know, he was there by the time he truly hit puberty. And he, it made him kind of the butt of many, many jokes, unfortunately. But he managed to get through it by by discovering humor and discovering comedy and discovering that people will forgive the things they perceive as flaws in your physical appearance if you can make them laugh. And so when Douglas finally, when he went through his education and finally ended up back in Cambridge to study at the university there, He really made it a point of wanting to try and get into a prestigious 
student organization called the Cambridge Footlights. Unfortunately, he didn't immediately get in. Um, he had to. He was sort of put on layaway very briefly, and instead, he he sort of co-wrote guerrilla sketches that were then put out uh, by by a small crew that he put together. Uh, and eventually, he did get accepted into the Footlights, though, and graduated from Cambridge in turn with a with a degree in English literature. And after that, uh, he really, really wanted to try and break into the British film and television industry as a comedy writer. Now, traditionally, uh, many of his heroes in the Footlights, people like, of course, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Peter Cook, uh, these noted luminaries. Uh, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, uh, Clive James. Many of these people immediately went into, or immediately began to get into uh, careers in broadcasting, careers in acting, careers in television, straight out of the footlights. But Douglas wasn't nearly as lucky as them. He managed to do a little bit of sketch writing for film and television at that time, including managing to get a couple of uh, sketches done by Monty Python when the Monty Python troupe was doing its fourth series of Flying Circus. He did two segments and actually appeared in two episodes of that show. But unfortunately after that, as it is the case with a lot of writers, it really uh, is, is work dried up for a good period of time and the assignments became pretty spotty even though he kept writing for film and TV nothing was really bought nothing was accepted he wasn't able to break in that way and then he had a mild uptick when he was able to put together a kind of review show that he was able to perform at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival but then there was another valley in his career and it was so bad that he ended up having to move back in with his mother by this point, which really negatively impacted his own confidence in his abilities, which would become an unfortunate staple for the rest of his life and the rest of his career. Eventually, though, he was able to start working again, but mainly in radio. And it was in radio in the 1970s, late 1970s, 1977, around then, he was able to finally start writing the first version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it was just a series of radio broadcasts that were put out that he wrote, that were then recorded and put out into the world. And it was... Most of it was in that kind of sketch format that he had mastered by this point, or had made his own, and it would it, that would become the foundation for, of course, the book that most people remember him for. Uh, he was then able, very briefly, to try and uh, get back into television because by this point, Doctor Who was running, and having had a little bit of experience writing for science fiction and, of course, writing for television, he wanted to try and. Uh, start working for that show and he did have two serials as they were called then which are which are of course longer stories told over multiple 30 minute episodes completely different from the format they use on the show now 
uh, but he did have two serials uh, during Tom Baker's era, you know, the kingpin of, of all the Doctors, at least of the classic series, uh, produced. And the first one was, of course, The Pirate Planet, and the second one was called City of Death. He did have a third one in the pipeline, which was called Shada, but it was only ever partly completed. Uh, largely due to uh, severe industry disputes that uh, were never resolved and eventually the project got completely scrapped. Pretty sad, because, uh, but, but thankfully it was uh, the, the BBC were then able to kind of uh, jerry-rig a version of Shada together, I think using animatic or animation and audio, new audio from Tom Baker, who was thankfully still alive and was able to do it, and I'm sure was happy for the work, uh, <laughs> and that was put out uh, about three years ago, in July of uh, 2018, but eventually he finally decided to take the concept that he'd started with that uh, science fiction comedy radio series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he decided that he was going to turn it into a book. The famous story of how he came up with that title was that he was uh, hitchhiking around Europe, and he happened to be laying in a field drunk in a place uh, like Innsbruck, Austria, that's right, Uh, and just gazing up at the stars one night, you know, completely hammered out of his mind, and he happened to have a copy of a book called Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe with him. And he thought somebody ought to write Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was just one of those random spur-of-the-moment ideas that eventually germinated into something much bigger. So finally he did decide to um, turn it into a book, and that was first. the first one was published in 1979 which was quickly followed up by a sequel in 1980, then another in 1982, 84, and the final one in 1992. The thing of it is, is that sounds like a fairly decent uh, clip to have as a writer, a fairly decent pattern and output, but Adams, like I said earlier, he had very low confidence, and he was constantly taking on, especially as he became more successful. He was constantly taking on more and more work. The problem is, is that when you are not a very fast writer, when you're not a prolific writer, and you're and you have severe confidence issues, it tends to cause you to get into these thought spirals of not being good enough, not being worth enough, and that compels you to not want to do it. And so he was sort of, I mean, there are famous uh, stories about his editor having to lock him in a hotel room and being locked in there with him and making sure that he just ground out the words of the next book. The poor bastard. Um, you know, as, as that one line goes uh, from one of his books, and I think it's Hitchhiker, actually. I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they go by. <laughs> uh, clever man. But he really wasn't um, able to produce those with with any degree to any degree of speed or confidence. Even though we read them today, and they were absolutely marvelous. But they weren't his only output. Later on, uh, 
actually later on in, in, in between writing the fourth and fifth uh, Hitchhiker book, he wrote a duology of books called the Dirk Gently series, which apparently he enjoyed a lot writing a lot more of than, than he did Hitchhiker. The first one, of course, was called uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and then the sequel was the Long Dark Tea Time of the Sea of the Soul. Excuse me. Uh, and those came out boom, boom, very quickly. Um, the first one in roughly uh, 1987, and then the next one in '88. So he, you know, he had a good clip going there, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to keep that series going just simply because he either he didn't have the ideas for it, or he, he moved away from novel writing because it was so agonizing for him. But he also wrote other things as well. He wrote a non-fiction book called Last Chance to See, which apparently he produced in 1989, which the year after he did the second Dirk Gently book. And what he did there is he was, he was given this opportunity to go elsewhere in the world to these very obscure places in order to see different species of animal who are extremely endangered including the I.I., a type of uh, lemur that lives in Madagascar, the Kakapo, the Komodo dragon, the mountain gorilla, uh, the white rhino, uh, the Yangtze river dolphin, uh, the Rodriguez fruit bat, you know, Amazonian manatees, you know, these, these fantastic animals who, that are sadly severely endangered. But he did eventually come back to writing Hitchhiker, and he ended the series, at least in theory, with um, that last book, uh, which is kind of a sad one. But eventually Owen Colfer came back and uh, wrote another book that follows up that one. Uh, I guess he had permission from Adams' estate to do that. After that, Adams became very interested in a lot of different things. He was interested, obviously, in music. He was interested in computers, like a lot of SF writers, uh, and very interested in things like computer games. I mean, he helped design uh, at least two different computer games, helped design a whole website for Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, One of the computer games that he designed was Starship Titanic, which actually looked like a pretty decent game. I don't think it would have run on anything that we use today, but it was fantastic. Unfortunately, Adams' life was cut very, very short. Uh, He died at the age of 49 in Montecito, California, of a heart attack. Um, And that was in May of 2001. So I was eight. <laughs> I was eight years old. I had just turned eight, um, unfortunately. Which meant that he would not be able to be here to share more of his unique wit, his unique perspective with us through his books. And it's kind of sad, you know, when you think about, you know, that means that he's been dead. He's been dead officially 20 years this year. This past May, the the 11th of May uh, of 2021 was the 20th anniversary of his passing, and it was a real, 
uh, it's really weird when you when you haven't met somebody and yet their work means so much to you it's just incredible when you realize an anniversary like that is coming and it's happened and they're not here anymore they're not here to, to make the world a slightly more pleasant place just by doing what they do but he lived a good life you can't deny him that he was a fan, he's a fantastic writer a unique writer everyone wishes that they could be very much like Douglas Adams uh, or at least as good a writer as he is and uh, the thing about people like Douglas is that they are once-in-a-lifetime kinds of people. So anyway, I thought I would show off uh, my reading of the earliest part of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in this case, it's just the preamble and the first chapter, the whole first chapter. And I do stumble a little bit through it, uh, but I, I do try my best to, to, to get through it and do it justice as well. So here it is, the opening chapter of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Enjoy. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this, at a distance of roughly 98 million miles, is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended life-forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. This planet has or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper. Which is odd, because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And so the problem remained. Lots of the people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place, and some said that even the trees had been a bad move, and that no one should have ever left the oceans. And then, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realized what it was that had been going wrong all this time, and she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. This time, it was right, it would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone about it, a terrible, stupid catastrophe occurred, and the idea was lost forever. This is not her story. But it is the story of that terrible, stupid catastrophe and some of its consequences. It is also the story of a book 
a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Not an Earth book, never published on Earth, and until the terrible catastrophe occurred, never seen or even heard of by any Earthman. Nevertheless, a wholly remarkable book. In fact, it was probably the most remarkable book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor, of which no Earthman had ever heard either. Not only is it a wholly remarkable book, it is also a highly successful one. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than 53 More Things to Do in Zero Gravity, and more controversial than Ulan Khalifid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? In many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, the Hitchhiker's Guide has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom. For though it has many omissions and contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it is slightly cheaper. And second, it has the words, Don't Panic, inscribed in large, friendly letters on its cover. But the story of this terrible, stupid Thursday, the story of its extraordinary consequences, and the story of how these consequences are inextricably entwined with this remarkable book, begins very simply. It begins with a house. Chapter 1 the house stood on a slight rise just on the edge of the village. It stood on its own and looked out over a broad spread of West Country farmland. Not a remarkable house by any means. It was about 30 years old, squattish, squarish, made of brick, and had four windows set in the front of a size and proportion which more or less exactly failed to please the eye. The only person for whom the house was in any way special was Arthur Dent, and that was only because it happened to be the one he lived in. He had lived in it for about three years, ever since he had moved out of London because it made him nervous and irritable. He was about thirty as well, tall, dark-haired, and never quite at ease with himself. The thing that used to worry him most was the fact that people always used to ask him what he was looking so worried about. He worked in local radio, which he always used to tell his friends was a lot more interesting than they probably thought. It was, too. Most of his friends worked in advertising. On Wednesday night, it had rained very heavily. The lane was wet and muddy, but the Thursday morning sun was bright and clear as it shone on Arthur Dent's house for what was to be the last time. It hadn't properly registered yet with Arthur that the council wanted to knock it down and build a bypass instead. At eight o'clock on Thursday morning, Arthur didn't feel very good. He woke up blearily, got up, wandered blearily around his room, opened a window, saw a bulldozer, found his slippers, and stomped off to the bathroom to wash. Toothpaste on the brush, so scrub. Shaving mirror pointing at the ceiling. 
He adjusted it for a moment. It reflected a second bulldozer through the bathroom window. Properly adjusted, it reflected Arthur Dent's bristles. He shaved them off, washed, dried, and stomped off to the kitchen to find something pleasant to put in his mouth. Kettle, plug, fridge, milk, coffee, yawn. The word bulldozer wandered through his mind for a moment in search of something to connect with. The bulldozer outside the kitchen window was quite a big one. He stared at it. Yellow, he thought, and stomped off back to his bedroom to get dressed. Passing the bathroom, he stopped to drink a large glass of water and another. He began to suspect that he was hungover. Why was he hungover? Had he been drinking the night before? He supposed that he must have been. He caught a glint in the shaving mirror. Yellow, he thought, and stomped on into the bathroom. He stood and thought. The pub, he thought. Oh dear, the pub. He vaguely remembered being angry, angry about something that seemed important. He'd been telling people about it, telling people about it at great length. He rather suspected. His clearest visual recollection was of glazed looks on other people's faces. Something about a new bypass he'd just found out about. It had been in the pipeline for months. Only no one seemed to have known about it. Ridiculous. He took a swig of water. It would sort itself out. He decided. No one wanted a bypass. The council didn't have a leg to stand on. It would sort itself out. God, what a terrible hangover! It had earned him, though. He looked at himself in the wardrobe mirror. He stuck out his tongue. Yellow, he thought. The word yellow wandered through his mind in search of something to connect with. Fifteen seconds later, he was out of the house and lying in front of a big yellow bulldozer that was advancing up his garden path. Mr. L. Prosser was, as they say, only human. In other words, he was a carbon-based bipedal life form descended from an ape. More specifically, he was forty, fat and shabby, and worked for the local council. Curiously enough, though he didn't know it, he was also a direct male line descendant of Genghis Khan. Though intervening generations and racial mixing had so juggled his genes that he had no discernible mongoloid characteristics, and the only vestiges left in Mr. L. Prosser of his mighty ancestry were a pronounced stoutness about the turn and a predilection for little fur hats. He was by no means a great warrior. In fact, he was a nervous, worried man. Today, he was particularly nervous and worried because something had gone seriously wrong with his job, which was to see that Arthur Dent's house got cleared out of the way before the day was out. "Come off it, Mr. Dent," he said. "You can't win, you know. You can't lie in front of the bulldozer indefinitely." He tried to make his eyes blaze fiercely, but they just wouldn't do it. Arthur lay in the mud and squelched at him. I'm game," he said. "We'll see who rusts first." "I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it," said Mr. Prosser, gripping his fur hat and rolling it around the top of his head. "This bypass has got to be built, and it's going to be built." "First I've heard of it," said Arthur. "Why's it got to be built?" 
Mr. Prosser shook his finger at him for a bit, then stopped and put it away again. What do you mean, why's it got to be built, he said. It's a bypass. We've got to build bypasses. Bypasses are devices that allow some people to dash from point A to point B very fast, while other people dash from point B to point A very fast. People living at point C, being a point directly between, are often given to wonder what's so great about point A that so many people from point B are so keen to get there, and what's so great about point B that so many people from point A are so keen to get there. They often wish that people would just once and for all work out where the hell they wanted to be. Mr. Prosser wanted to be at point D. Point D wasn't anywhere in particular. It was just a convenient look point in a very long way from points A, B, and C. He would have a nice little cottage at point D with axes over the door and spend a pleasant amount of time at point E, which would be the nearest pub to point D. His wife, of course, wanted climbing roses, but he wanted axes. He didn't know why, he just liked axes. He flushed hotly under the derisive grins of the bulldozer drivers. He shifted his weight from foot to foot, but it was equally uncomfortable on each. Obviously, somebody had been appallingly incompetent, and he hoped to God it wasn't him. Mr. Prosser said, You were quite entitled to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time, you know. Appropriate time? hooted Arthur. Appropriate time? The first I knew about it was when a workman arrived at my home yesterday. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows, and he said no, he'd come to demolish the house. He didn't tell me straight away, of course. Oh, no. First, he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told me. But, Mr. Dent, the plans have been available in the local planning office for the last nine months. Oh, yes. Well, as soon as I heard, I went straight round to see them yesterday afternoon. You hadn't exactly gone out of your way to call attention to them, had you? I mean, like actually telling anybody or anything. But the plans were on display. On display? I eventually had to go down to the cellar to find them. That's the display department. With a flashlight. Ah, well, the lights had probably gone. So had the stairs. But look, you found the notice, didn't you? Yes, said Arthur. Yes, I did. It was on the display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. A cloud passed overhead. It cast a shadow over Arthur Dent as he lay popped up on his elbow in the cold mud. It cast a shadow over Arthur Dent's house. Mr. Prosser frowned at it. It's not as if it's a particularly nice house, he said. I'm sorry, but I happen to like it. You'll like the bypass. Oh, shut up, said Arthur Dent. Shut up and go away and take your bloody bypass with you. You haven't a leg to stand on and you know it. Mr. Prosser's mouth opened and closed a couple of times while his mind was, for a moment, filled with inexplicable but terribly attractive visions of Arthur Dent's house being consumed with fire, and Arthur himself running screaming from the blazing ruin, with at least three hefty spears protruding from his back. Mr. Prosser was often bothered with visions like these, and they made him feel very nervous.
He stuttered for a moment and then pulled himself together. Mr. Dent, he said. Hello, yes, said Arthur. Some factual information for you. Have you any idea how much damage that bulldozer would suffer if I just let it roll straight over you? How much, said Arthur. None at all, said Mr. Prosser, and stormed nervously off, wondering why his brain was filled with a thousand hairy horsemen all shouting at him. By a curious coincidence, not at all is exactly how much suspicion the ape descendant Arthur Dent had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice, and not from Guilford as he usually claimed. Arthur Dent had never, ever suspected this. This friend of his had first arrived on the planet Earth some fifteen years previously, and he had worked hard to blend himself into Earth society with, it must be said, some success. For instance, he had spent those fifteen years pretending to be an out-of-work actor, which was plausible enough. He had made one careless blunder, though, because he had skimped on a bit of his preparatory research. The information he had gathered had led him to choose the name Ford Prefect as being nicely inconspicuous. He was not conspicuously tall, his features were striking but not conspicuously handsome, his hair was wiry and gingerish and brushed backward from the temples, his skin seemed to be pulled backward from the nose, there was something very slightly odd about him, but it was difficult to say what it was. Perhaps it was that his eyes didn't seem to blink often enough, and when you talked to him for any length of time, your eyes began involuntarily to water on his behalf. Perhaps it was that he smiled slightly too broadly and gave people the unnerving impression that he was about to go for their neck. He struck most of the friends he had made on Earth as an eccentric but a harmless one an unruly boozer with some oddish habits. For instance, he would often gate-crash university parties, get badly drunk, and start making fun of any astrophysicist he could find till he got thrown out. Sometimes he would get seized with oddly distracted moods and stare into the sky as if hypnotized until someone asked him what he was doing. Then he would start guiltily for a moment, relax, and grin. Oh, just looking for flying saucers, he would joke, and everyone would laugh and ask him what sort of flying saucers he was looking for. Green ones, he would reply with a wicked grin, laugh wildly for a moment, and then suddenly lunge for the nearest bar and buy an enormous round of drinks. Evenings like this usually ended badly. Ford would get out of his skull on whiskey, huddle in a corner with some girl, and explain to her in slurred phrases that honestly the color of the flying saucers didn't matter that much really. Thereafter, staggering, semi-paralytic down the night streets, he would often ask passing policemen if they knew the way to Beetlejuice. The policeman would usually say something like, Don't you think it's about time you went off home, sir? I'm trying to, baby, I'm trying to, is what Ford invariably replied on these occasions. In fact, 
What he was really looking for when he stared distractedly into the sky was any kind of flying saucer at all. The reason he said green was that green was the traditional space livery of the Beetlejuice trading scouts. Ford Prefect was desperate that any flying saucer at all would arrive soon because 15 years was a long time to get stranded anywhere, particularly somewhere as mind-boggling dull as the Earth. Ford wished that a flying saucer would arrive soon because he knew how to flag flying saucers down and get lifts from them. He knew how to see the marvels of the universe for less than 30 Alterian dollars a day. In fact, Ford Prefect was a roving researcher for that wholly remarkable book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Human beings are great adapters, and by lunchtime, life in the environs of Arthur's house had settled into a steady routine. It was Arthur's accepted role to lie squilching in the mud, making occasional demands to see his lawyer, his mother, or a good book. It was Mr. Prosser's accepted role to tackle Arthur with the occasional new ploy, such as the For the Public Good talk, or the March of Progress talk, or the They Knocked My House Down Once You Know, Never Looked Back talk, and various other cajoleries and threats. And it was the bulldozer driver's accepted role to sit around drinking coffee and experimenting with union regulations to see how they could turn the situation to their financial advantage. The earth moved slowly in its diurnal course. The sun was beginning to dry out the mud that Arthur lay in. A shadow moved across him again. Hello, Arthur, said the shadow. Arthur looked up and squinting into the sun was startled to see Ford Prefect standing above him. Ford! Hello, how are you? Fine, said Ford. Look, are you busy? Am I busy? explained Arthur. Well, I've just got all these bulldozers and things to lie in front of because they'll knock my house down if I don't. But other than that, well, no, not especially. Why? Ford glanced at him, puzzled. Well, he can do it while you're away, can't he? He asked. But I don't want him to. Ah. Look, what's the matter with you, Ford? Said Arthur. Nothing. Nothing's the matter. Listen to me. I've got to tell you the most important thing you've ever heard. I've got to tell you now, and I've got to tell you in the saloon bar of the horse and groom. But why? Because you're going to need a very stiff drink. Ford stared at Arthur, and Arthur was astonished to find his will beginning to weaken. He didn't realize that this was because of an old drinking game that Ford learned to play in the hyperspace ports that served the Banderite mining belts in the star system of Orion Beta. The game was unlike the Earth game called Indian Wrestling, and was played like this. Two contestants would sit either side of a table with a glass in front of each of them. Between them would be placed a bottle of Jack's Spirit, as immortalized in that ancient Orion mining song, Oh, don't give me none more of that old Jack's Spirit. No, don't you give me none more of that old Jack's Spirit. For my head will fly, my tongue will lie, my eyes will fry, and I may die. Won't you pour me one more of that sinful old Jack's spirit? 
Each of the two contestants would then concentrate their will on the bottle and attempt to tip it and pour spirit into the glass of his opponent, who would then have to drink it. The bottle would then be refilled. The game would be played again and again. Once you started to lose, you would probably keep losing, because one of the effects of Jack's spirit is to depress telepathic power. As soon as a predetermined quantity had been consumed, the final loser would have to perform a forfeit, which was usually obscenely biological. For Prefect, usually played to lose. Ford stared at Arthur, who began to think that perhaps he did want to go to the horse and groom after all. But what about my house? he asked plaintively. Ford looked across to Mr. Prosser, and suddenly a wicked thought struck him. He wants to knock your house down. Yes, he wants to build, and he can't because you're lying in front of his bulldozer. Yes, and I'm sure we can come to some arrangements, said Ford. Excuse me, he shouted. Mr. Prosser, who was arguing with a spokesman for the bulldozer drivers about whether or not Arthur Dent constituted a mental health hazard and how much they should get paid if he did, looked around. He was surprised and slightly alarmed to see that Arthur had company. Yes, hello, he called. Has Mr. Dent come to his senses yet? Can we for the moment, called Ford, assume that he hasn't? Well, sighed Mr. Prosser. And can we also assume, said Ford, that he's going to be staying here all day? So? So all your men are going to be standing around all day doing nothing? Could be, could be. Well, if you're resigned to doing that anyway, you don't actually need him to lie here all the time, do you? What? You don't? said Ford patiently, actually need him here. Mr. Prosser thought about this. Well, no, not as such, he said. Not exactly need. Prosser was worried. He thought that one of them wasn't making a lot of sense. Ford said, so if you would just like to take it as read that he's actually here, then he and I could slip off down to the pub for a half an hour. How does that sound? Mr. Prosser thought it sounded perfectly potty. That sounds perfectly reasonable, he said in a reassuring tone of voice, wondering who he was trying to reassure. And if you want to pop off for a quick one yourself later on, said Ford, we can always cover for you in return. Well, thank you very much, said Mr. Prosser, who no longer knew how to play this at all. Thank you very much, yes, that's very kind. He frowned, then smiled, then tried to do both at once, failed, grasped hold of his fur hat, and rolled it fitfully round the top of his head. He could only assume that he had just won. So, continued for Prefect, if you would just like to come over here and lie down. What? said Mr. Prosser. Ah, I'm sorry, said Ford. Perhaps I hadn't made myself fully clear. Somebody's got to lie in front of the bulldozer, haven't they? Or they, there won't be anything to stop them driving into Mr. Dent's house, will there? What? said Mr. Prosser again. It's very simple, said Ford. My client, Mr. Dent, says that he will stop lying here in the mud on the sole condition that you come and take over for him. What are you talking about, said Arthur? but Ford nudged him with his shoe to be quiet. You want me, 
said Prosser, spelling out this new thought to himself. To come and lie there? Yes. In front of the bulldozer? Yes. Instead of Mr. Dent? Yes. In the mud? In, as you say, the mud. As soon as Mr. Prosser realized that he was substantially the loser after all, it was as if a weight lifted itself off his shoulders. This was more like the world he knew it as he knew it. He sighed. In return for which you will take Mr. Dent with you down to the pub. That's it, said Ford. That's exactly it. Mr. Prosser took a few nervous steps forward and stopped. Promise, he said. Promise, said Ford. He turned to Arthur. Come on, he said to him. Get up and let the man lie down. Arthur stood up, feeling as if he was in a dream. Ford beckoned to Prosser, who sadly, awkwardly, sat down in the mud. He felt that his whole life was some kind of dream, and he sometimes wondered whose it was and whether they were enjoying it. The mud folded itself around his bottom, and then his arms, and oozing into his shoes. Ford looked at him severely. And no sneaky knocking down Mr. Dent's house while he's away, all right, he said. The mere thought, growled Mr. Prosser, hadn't even begun to speculate. He continued, settling himself back, about the merest possibility of crossing my mind. He saw the bulldozer driver's union representative approaching and let his head sink back and close his eyes. He was trying to marshal his arguments for proving that he did not now constitute a mental health hazard himself. He was far from certain about this. His mind seemed to be full of noise, horses, smoke, and the stench of blood. This always happened when he felt miserable or put upon, and he had never been able to explain it to himself. In a high dimension of which we know nothing, the mighty Khan bellowed with rage, but Mr. Prosser only trembled slightly and whimpered. He began to feel little pricks of water in his eyelids. Bureaucratic cock-ups, angry men lying in mud, indecipherable strangers hanging out inexplicable humiliation, and an unidentified army of horsemen laughing at him in his head. What a day. What a day, for Prefect knew that it didn't matter a pair of Dingo's kidneys whether Arthur's house got knocked down or not. Arthur remained very worried. But can we trust him, he said? Myself, I'd trust him to the end of the earth, said Ford. Oh, yes, said Arthur. And how far is that? About twelve minutes away, said Ford. Come on, I need a drink. interesting thing that I wanted to mention real quick. First of all, uh, with Douglas's writing style, even though the characters do come off very, very lively in their own ways, the funniest things that are often said 
throughout the narrative are actually said within the narration itself. And I find that so extraordinary. I mean, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is written in what they call that third-person omniscient narrative voice, where the narration of the story actually has this very overt personality to it. And it's always there. It's the unifying... It's probably the most unifying force of the book as a whole, uh, which is a good thing, because when you're constantly moving from one character's viewpoint to another, I mean, within that one chapter, you've got three different characters whose perspectives you're bouncing between. You've got Arthur, you've got... uh, You've got the guy who's trying to desperately destroy his house, and then you've got Ford. You've got these three distinct people who do come off as three distinct people. You've got Arthur, who is just this slightly neurotic individual who kind of wants to be left alone and wants to be left in peace. Then you've got Ford, who's kind of like a English frat boy from another planet. And then you've got the, the <laughs> Prosser, who is this uh, equally neurotic uh, blue-collar worker who just wants to get through his day and wants to try and desperately avoid being humiliated and fails at every turn to not be humiliated. Um, but the unifying thread that unites them all is that voice, that voice of the narrative. When Neil Gaiman co-wrote a piece, co-wrote a book, he wrote one of the earliest books that Neil wrote. It was a non-fiction book called Don't Panic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion. Uh, and it was just a non-fiction book that compiled a whole bunch of other material that was related to Hitchhiker, including, I believe including, several of the original radio scripts that Douglas used as the basis for the novel, uh, just all put together. And it was reading through those, in part, that actually encouraged Neil Gaiman to begin writing Sandman because he noted the tone of voice. He noted the tone, which is that classic English humor style. It's something that P.G. Woodhouse had. It's something that um, some of A.A. Milne's adult works, A.A. Milne, by the way, that's the original author of Winnie the Pooh, it's something that he had, and it's something that Terry Pratchett has as well uh, in his Discworld novels, where the voice of that narrator, the voice of that omniscient figure who's telling you, the reader, about what's going on, is always the funniest figure in the room. And they, 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 there is no character, it's just the tone of the work. And it was actually that that caused him to write the first 5,000 words of Good Omens. So without Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy having been written and without Neil having written that book, you know, Don't Panic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion, there might never have been a Good Omens, which means there wouldn't have been, a, you know, the, obviously the book, there wouldn't have been the excellent radio adaptation, there wouldn't have been the first season of the Amazon TV show that came out uh, two years ago, and there wouldn't be the excellent news of Neil producing a second season of that based on the rough outline that uh, he and Terry Pratchett worked out before Terry died. Um, It's wonderful. 
but it's that classic English humor style, in of which there is really no American equivalent. There really isn't an American equivalent of that, and I'm not entirely sure why that's the case. I guess because America is much larger country, and our sense of humor is so diverse. I mean, you've got people who live in the Southwest and the West who are a little bit more laid back. Same, same place. Same with the people up in the Pacific North Coast. They have a, a definite sense of irony, but it's more subdued. Then you've got the people in the Northeast who are a little bit more sarcastic and uh, biting and wisecracking. I mean, there's a reason why they gave Bugs Bunny a voice that was kind of a combination of the of Brooklyn and Bronx. Uh, and and so their, their humor is very there. And then you've got people who live in the South and the Midwest who barely have any sense of humor at all. <laughs> So, uh, we, do, we don't really have that. I mean, the closest thing that we have is some of Mark Twain's writing. Some of his writing uh, is, is, comes pretty close to that, but it uses that American idiom. But there's no equivalent to any of those. It's, it's very close to an English style, a unique English style. And I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And I don't think we, we could ever possibly hope to match it. I mean, Bob Sheckley came close with Dimension of Miracles uh, and he and um, some of the short stories that he wrote, obviously. Uh, but, but there's American humor. It's, it's very, very different from British humor. British humor, there's so much more reliance on innuendo, double entendre, lots and lots of wordplay. And Americans don't really like very much wordplay. They don't like puns. They don't like, uh, they, yeah, they especially don't like puns. They don't like word tricks. I mean, I remember there was this one interview that Stephen Colbert did shortly after he, he started doing Late Night, uh, or the, yeah, The Late Show on CBS, and he described it to the New York Times like, some jokes are just word tricks. Some jokes are just word tricks. It's like, yeah, but they're funny. It's like, what's the problem? <laughs> and I guess that's just, that's that's the influence of all this reading on my sense of humor showing. But who knows? Uh, Douglas's writing style is totally individual to himself. Uh, but maybe there will be somebody who comes along who is fairly comparable to him sometime in the future. But... I doubt it. I mean, there there are no there are no repeats when it comes to that. It's just wholly its own thing, and I think always will be. And I think that's also one of the reasons why Hitchhiker and the rest and its sequel books will continue to always be read, as well as the Dirk Gently books. Most people don't know about the Dirk Gently books, um, but I think they will as time goes on. They'll find more people will find out about it simply because they're jonesing for more Douglas Adams, and there there never will be more Douglas Adams. Hey, 
Hey, funny people. Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, folks, birthing is hard and dying is mean. So get yourself a little loving in between. I'll see you next time.